episode of the Unstified Community Podcast. Shahira here, co-founder of Finch and venture partner at Scalata Ventures. And joining me today is the wonderful Sydney Powell, CEO and co-founder of on-chain capital markets, Maple Finance. Welcome, Sydney. Hey, Shahira. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. I always love the opportunity to dive into areas of DeFi that's not part of my day-to-day, so I'm really keen to to kick us off. Um, I do love to start these conversations with, I guess, a bit of an intro on your background. You're obviously a a TradFi guy, career in banking and corporate finance. Tell us about your journey into Web3 and maybe um, what your aha moment was in, in pursuing this path. Yeah, sure. So as as you mentioned, my uh, I was a TradFi guy. So my background was in banking. So I used to work at uh, NAB, actually. And I was doing debt capital markets work, uh, which meant securitizations. So I was helping, in effect, that was helping lending companies to borrow so that they could give loans out to their customers. Um, so it was quite complex, but I really enjoyed working with the entrepreneurial set of clients uh, that that part of the business had. And then eventually I had the opportunity to go from being on the deal side, so doing deals as part of the, the bank, to being at a company that did lending as a business and actually seeing what was involved there. And when you go from, when you, when you go from being on the deal side to uh, actually being embedded in a business and doing that, you can see that it's actually a lot wider, the, the set of things that you need to worry about and manage. And that was what I found working at that company. And so I would have to deal with lawyers, with the tech systems, pulling together reporting, trustees, trust managers. But altogether, I found that you have you know six or seven different parties that you have to pay fees to and who you have to coordinate with to, to borrow and to operate a lending company. And so this was 2017, 2018. And that was when I started hearing about cryptocurrency. But when I was in the bank and and hearing about Bitcoin earlier on, I, like everyone else who worked in the bank, just assumed it was a scam. Mm -hmm. And I I wish I'd taken some people's advice earlier on to buy it. But it was really when I started learning about the concept of... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it was really when I started learning about the concept of smart contracts that that got me interested. Because the initial value proposition as I saw it was that I could automate all of the third parties that I had to pay fees to and just program that as code and save all of that margin. So I saw an opportunity to have a much more profitable, um, efficient business. uh, And and, and that was it. So I, I went down the rabbit hole in 2018. I was reading all these white papers and I was conceptualizing, could you do tokenized securitization on chain? And, um, and then in 2019 started to write, write a, uh, write a white paper about this. Mm-hmm. And then me and my co-founder who, you know, we worked together at that lending business. We then started conceptualizing the idea that would become Maple eventually, but it was just very, you know, it was in fits and starts early on. So it was trying to write a white paper, trying to meet software engineers, trying to get into the space. And, uh, you know, uh, it was just a long journey to, to kind of get the, get here. And then by the end of 2020, 2020, uh, DeFi summer had rolled around and uh, you ha- you just started to have an ecosystem and people suddenly believe that these could be you know viable businesses and viable protocols. And that's when uh, we quit and went full-time on Maple. Excellent. I love that. Um, 
uh, ability to have to been in a you know been in a business and identified so many inefficiencies and so many um, overheads associated with doing something that now feels very seamless and and effortless through the the smart contract um, mechanism. So tell us what Maple Finance maybe started out as in 2021. Mm. It's, it's crazy to think you've only been around for a few years, just given uh, the incredible work, you know, and the journey that it's been for you to date. And, and I guess as part of that, I'd love to hear uh, you know, what the last few years has, has actually been like for you. I understand, you know, at, at the peak of, of Maple, you were lending somewhere, you know, around around $2 billion in, in loans, which is an, an enormous mm. amount. Um, and then, of course, there was surviving the fallout of last year with the F- FTX and the like. So, t- take us on that on mm-hmm. that journey, Sid. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack in there. Um, but how Maple started with this concept of doing tokenized bonds on chain, and so that you know that was uh, a nod back to my uh, my time in banking doing securitization. But we realized that we we didn't have a complete product because there were no loans that you could actually you know tokenize and turn into bonds. And so the product evolved then where early 2020, we were uh, we were trying to write some peer-to-peer loans, but we found it's very difficult because you're you're writing you know five or ten thousand dollar loans with your own money to potentially anonymous people, and you're very unsure whether you, whether they're going to pay back. And we we're thinking, you know, this is going to be this is going to be incredibly hard to even do two hundred thousand dollars of loans, let alone two million. And how is this possibly going to scale? And so I would read all these, uh, you know, white paper analyses of like Lending Club, people doing analysis of whether Lending Club ever actually made money for lenders. And the short answer was it didn't really. And uh, so then we kind of merged the the original concept, which was let's have pools of loans that get sort of tranched out with the idea of let's vertically integrate and do, you know, have the lending occur on the platform. And that then became the the package that eventually launched in May of 2021. And so from there, it was like this roller coaster ride where the volumes grew slowly at first, but then by the end of 2021, we had 500 million in assets deposited across the pools. And Maple's model was to have outsourced underwriters. So it was like money would go into a pool be held by a smart contract. And then you'd have teams of underwriters, which we call delegates, who would be third parties who use us as like infrastructure and software to run a lending business. With the idea being that it would be more profitable and easier to aggregate capital. So a a more profitable way to do lending by using the blockchain. And uh, as we went through 2021, uh, sorry, 2021 and 2022, we, uh, as you said, hit about 2 billion in loans done. And at our peak, we had about a billion in, in, deposits uh in the protocol um but this was fueled like this this was uh this was fueled by macro conditions where you had a lot of easy money and so people were chasing yields and so that meant money was getting pushed into protocols and into DeFi, and people were chasing very high yields that were often driven by these token like liquidity mining incentives but people weren't really adjusting for risk and so the bread and butter, and I'll, I'll use Maple collectively, you know, including the delegates who do the underwriting, but the loans on Maple are going to market makers and market neutral funds. So these firms are not gambling. It's not lending for gambling. They are being lent to so that they can provide execution. So in Australia, you might have somebody who trades on BTC markets or, you know, maybe they're trading on Binance or Coinbase, but 
when they when they're executing a trade, the other side of that is generally going to be provided by a market maker, and they were going to borrow from a platform like Maple, or they were going to borrow from one of the centralized lenders, and so they're provide they're just providing a service, and they're getting paid to provide that liquidity on exchanges. But what happened is, as we went through 2022, beginning in May, May was like the high point, and then you have this collapse. You had the collapse of Luna, and then that triggered uh, the collapse of uh, Celsius, which was attributed to um, you know, Im improperly hedged positions in DeFi and some losses to hacks, but uh, this concept of impermanent loss. Mm -hmm. And then you had this kind of uh, um, uh, contagion effects rippling throughout DeFi, where then you had in June, uh, 3AC collapsed, and that then left a dent in Genesis's balance sheet, who was one of the dominant centralized lenders. And so you just had this ripple on effect where things just kind of get kind of went from bad to worse. Now, Maple's loan book actually held up surprisingly well, given that the product was uncollateralized loans. So mm -hmm. a lot of people would have said, well, that type of portfolio should just be wiped out. Yeah. And that was that portfolio was yielding, you know, like north of 10 percent uh, on the loans. But uh, interestingly, when you include all of the loans that were written, so about two billion, the total cumulatively cumulative defaults were about two borrowers, about 45 million, which was effectively a loss rate of about 2.1%, which is actually pretty good. Like for uncollateralized lending, given yeah. what happened in the space was actually a very good result and outperformed all of its CFI competitors who are now all in chapter 11 bankruptcy. Mm. Um, what do you attribute that to? Uh, paradoxically, the fact that it was mostly a portfolio of uncollateralized loans meant mm. that it had to, um, uh, the delegates who were underwriting the loans had to be more careful anyway, because they knew that in if a borrower were to default, they would lose, you know, like it, it's it's close to a hundred percent wipeout mm. in loss given default, um, and we were much smaller, so we had to be much more careful because we weren't in in the event of a default, we weren't going to carry as much weight as our competitors, um, and we were uncollateralized rather than collateralized, but. It was also like just prudent risk management. So 3AC applied to borrow from Maple and was rejected because of the poor quality of their balance sheet and their, their financials didn't add up. Mm. Their corporate structure was also very convoluted. Um, Alameda was turned down, was borrowing and then wound down um, months before they collapsed because mm. their because the, the weakening of their balance sheet was observed. Mm. And uh, anyway, but didn't totally escape. So had a, had a couple of borrowers default. And um, what was interesting was one of the things that people look at is, are DeFi loans going to be upheld by courts? Like, are these valid? And what we found was, well, it's a valid legal contract. And then the loan just settles on chain. So it's like, if I write you a loan, Shahira, and we sign a legal contract together, and then uh, I just pay you cash, that's still a valid loan. And so the way to view loans in DeFi are that they are still valid. Like there's a valid legal obligation. It's just that the money moves hands on the blockchain. Mm -hmm. And so the court multiple times upheld the validity of these loans. And indeed, the two borrowers who defaulted are still going through um, proceedings where the blockchain DeFi loans that they took are, are being treated as valid alongside the other loans that they took. But anyway, let's... um. So we flash forward, then FTX happens, and suddenly people's risk, the, the level of risk adjustment people are applying to yields in the space um, increases dramatically. And mm -hmm. at the same time, you have the macro event of uh, treasury yields expanding, so quantitative tightening. 
And this meant that money got sucked out of risk on assets of which DeFi was treated as one and went back into, you know, traditional finance or TradFi uh, instruments like treasuries, government bonds. And um, this is the same in stocks, like stock valuations decline. It's just that it's more pronounced in DeFi and in crypto because it's a higher beta asset class. And uh, so anyway, it brings us forward to today and Maple's core DNA remains, you know, capital market on chain. And uh, the core thesis is that doing this lending, running lending business on chain ultimately leads to lower costs, which makes your business more profitable over time. But tactically, what we've had to do is adjust the types of products that are offered. So what we launched and what we started doing the first loans out of yesterday is this cash management pool, which is lending to an SPV. So it's bankruptcy remote. Um, it doesn't have other co-mingled obligations and debts. It borrows through Maple and it buys T-bills and it pledges those as collateral um, through a, you know, through a qualified custodian. And what that allows us to do as a service is to bring uh, on-chain low-risk, highly liquid yields and effectively a kind of substitute banking service or substitute cash management service where you can put your stable coins as a crypto company. So a lot of crypto startups cannot get banking services mm. in um, in certain markets. Like they're just denied the services. So they'll say they're a software company, but if a bank finds out they're working in crypto, they'll get debanked. Mm. And so they need a safe place to put their funds. And that's what we're trying to offer here is because effectively their deposits are one-to-one -one backed by short dated treasuries. What I th How I actually think this can expand though is like, let's then turn that weakness into an advantage and create tokenized repo on chain. So that's what we're trying to do here. Now, traditional finance repo only settles at the end of day, you know, um, so kind of low, what would you call that? Like high latency. And then it only trades during business hours. So low uptime overall. By putting this on chain, you can effectively have a deposit token that is kind of like tokenized repo. It's fully backed with with a treasury uh, instrument. It could trade 24 seven mm -hmm. among KYC counterparties and it could settle in minutes. So now I've got a product that's actually better than you can, than anything you could get in mm -hmm. TradFi. And so what we wanna do is expand that and have that ideally treated as collateral on mm -hmm. centralized and decentralized exchanges. Um, allow, let's say a sophisticated treasury manager has you know, $50 million that they want to earn interest on. Well, on a Friday night, they could buy that token, hold it over the weekend, collect the interest, and then sell it or um, liquidate it on a Monday. And so that's the kind of market that I see this evolving into. But anyway, that's a, that's a low risk product. Mm -hmm. And then the other one, that because we try and treat it like a portfolio approach. So that product is going to do fine as long as treasury rates remain elevated and people are pretty risk off. The other one is, is this concept of Maple Prime, which would be our loans, you know, held in smart contracts on chain. So totally visible and transparent, which mm -hmm. is one of the things that, um, that really uh, uh, trouble like plague CFI. And we could connect those smart contract loans with a qualified custodian so that we could over collateralize them with assets on other chains like Bitcoin. And so that gives us again, a, a low risk sort of over collateralized product. Um, that people can't get in TradFi. So that's kind of how we're thinking about positioning ourselves now for the remainder of this year. Mm. 
That was excellent. Um, and, and I think just if I were to zoom uh, out a little bit and understand um, how, and I guess underpinning your choice of, of um, using sort of T-bills is this idea of real world tokenization. So perhaps you can explain um, that process and if in fact mm. the tokenization of those assets, uh, how, what does that process entail? Is that part of it happening on chain? Uh, yes. Uh, so there's two ways you can tokenize assets. We've adopted a kind of leaner one. So let, let's uh, let's look at both of them. The first one is you could actually you just to you don't tokenize the asset itself. You create an obligation against it and you tokenize that. So in Maple's case, there's always loans that are tokenized. So it's like if I do, let's say you start a business and you borrow through a Maple pool, well, that loan is tokenized. So your interest rate, the duration of the loan, how often you have to pay it. All that is tokenized and uh, it effectively represents a digital version of like a loan term sheet and a legal agreement that you sign. So you'll have a term sheet that says, you know, Shahiriko is going to borrow at 10% per annum and is going to keep the loan for six months. And then that reflects what the loan token says on chain. But if we were to secure that loan with like a, a piece of property, that's kind of how Maple, that's that's sort of how uh, assets are tokenized on Maple. We tokenize the loan or we tokenize the mortgage, but we don't actually tokenize the house that um, is being is being purchased with the mortgage. So that's one way of doing it, which we think is leaner. And if you look at like, why would you do it that way? Well, you actually only, if you default, I want to sell the house, but mm -hmm. selling the house, I only need to tokenize the house if I want to sell it on chain. Otherwise I can just sell it you know, anywhere. And I'm probably going to have a wider market of buyers off chain. And then I use that to then repay the loan. So I want to control your loan on chain, but I don't care about controlling the house on chain. Mm -hmm. The other way of doing it is um, the, the mechanism that people use is they create an LLC. Let's, let's just use the US as an example, or I can, I can use Australia. So we create a, um, a private limited company. So um, what we do then is we transfer the house into that company and then we issue uh, equity in that company but we tokenize the equity so effectively you have an l like a, a, P a proprietary limited or ptyltd token on chain for your uh for this company and the company owns the house and so then what you say is okay well the whoever owns that token owns the comp is the 100 percent shareholder of that company and that company owns the house so it's kind of like two stages removed I think that's a bit clunky and I think that's actually more relevant if I want to create a market for trading in houses or trading in equity or trading in some other asset class mm -hmm. um, or cars, let's say on chain. But actually what we want to do is we want to have a capital market that trades in loans mm -hmm. or that aggregates loans, which are backed by real world assets. So I'd rather tokenize the loan and then just have the loan agreement that we use you know, reference security that I have over your car or your house or um, your business or another piece of real estate. Mm -hmm. So that's, yes, and, and that explains it on the, um, I guess, the lender's side. And on the borrower's side, what is what is the collateral? I don't know if that's a silly question. What is the collateral being put up for these for these loans? And um, compared to maybe the where Maple started around the under-collateralized mm -hmm. loan versus where you are today, um, What's the, what did, what is that shift? Yeah. Uh, 
it's, it's interesting. So we started with uncollateralized loans because we entered a crowded market where overcollateralized lending was already quite saturated. So we couldn't have stepped in and priced appropriately or gained the kind of market share that we would have wanted in that product. So we started with a, we entered the market with a low cost option, kind of like you know Eric Rees, like lean startup. We ended we entered with a minimum viable product, mm-hmm. and now over time have been able to invest more. Um, money in creating legal documents like there's legal research that has to go into doing you know tokenized real world assets and so then we have a secured loan agreement um and you know can build out the complexity of the the protocol we did maple v2 um so it's over time where we're kind of expanding the the idea is has always been that we would be a generalized debt capital market that could do secured loans unsecured loans tokenized real world assets um you know kind of uh repo money market type stuff which is what is happening with the cash management pool but um uh on the on the borrower side like what are they what are they borrowing against well for cash for the cash management pool they they own treasuries and they pledge them as collateral to borrow so they need to like one-to-one pledge that against their loan um for another pool that we did which is doing 10 million of uh 10 million of loans to small businesses, which are collateralized by tax credits. So what's happening there is that that small business sells its uh, sells its right to a tax rebate from the government, and that is audited by an accountant. It sells it to the originating company, and then what happens is the money from the government that is a rebate to that small business just goes directly to that company, and it goes into a bank account that we have security over or that our delegate has security over. So in that instance, you have an on-chain loan, but off-chain collateral. And that off-chain collateral is the cash flows coming from the government. So the right to those cash flows. So it's like receivables finance. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that sits off-chain, but you have a, a full binding legal agreement that governs those obligations mm-hmm. and you have control or it goes to a bank account that you have control over. So. Um, it's a, it, it is a mix of these types of things. Mm-hmm. What we've found in the real world asset space is that short dated, higher yielding assets are doing better as in they're finding more people who want to fund them. And that's because if I started, if we started to do real estate loans, mm-hmm. even shorter dated commercial ones, you're looking at three to five years, mm-hmm. um, often with an option to renew it even longer. And it's really hard for us to find uh, people who have stable coins who want to lock those up in a three to five year deal, but mm-hmm. short dated trade receivables, they could lock it up for 30, 60, 90 days. Generally, it's going to be like 90 to 180 days. Um, but you have this kind of, uh, you know, you've, in TradFi, you've got the concept of the yield curve. Well, the on-chain yield curve steepens, uh, steepens significantly as you get to 12 months. Mm-hmm. Beyond 12 months, the kind of yields that people require get astronomically higher to compensate them for the risk that they're bearing being a lender. And uh, so that's why it's kind of, it's bet if you can find a 10 to 10 to 12, 10 to 13% yielding um, uh, lending product that's short dated, that's kind of where you, you find good market fit these days. Um, presumably with, I guess, this move to higher collateralized loans the Hmm. yield is lower than perhaps what it was in you know 2021 um what sort of difference are you looking at and what has been the response to that lower yield 
Interestingly, the market is actually highly inefficient, so it's not. So um, just describing the journey and the yields. So when we launched the first pool on Maple, that was uh, May of 2021, yields on uncollateralized loans were about 15%. So like quite high. Because um, keep in mind, treasuries and bank accounts were yielding zero at that stage. Mm-hmm. And so you had a you had a, a spread in crypto of about 14, 15%. Um, even over collateralized loans then were yielding 10 to 12 or 13%. And the reason for this was that basis was mm-hmm. really high in crypto. So basis is the forward expectation of where, you know, the price of Bitcoin and ETH is going to be. It's the price that is paid to people who are, it's the price that longs pay shorts mm-hmm. in a, in a perpetuals product, a perpetual futures product. And um, so that was really elevated. So um, that meant that you had this like, very steep yield curve where people were paying high prices to, to access capital. So over the rest of 2021 and into 2022, yields continued to drop. And it got to the point where uncollateralized loans on stables were about 7 to 8%. So a firm the size of like a, a Jane Street or, a, or um, a jump, like the very large market makers are borrowing at sort of 6 7%. Um, and... Uh, you know, that that was because like, you know, Jane Street had publicly traded bonds that were, were priced around that level. So that was kind of like the best in breed, um, best in breed yield on stable coins. And keep in mind, treasuries are still yielding like zero then. And so what happened is then treasuries are repriced to, you know, five and a half, six on like one month. And uh, so that's pushed up. That's pushed up the required yields that people need. And so now if you were to do an overcollateralized loan, 200%, you can still probably get 10, 10 to 12 uh, or 10 to 13% on it. So we're kind of back to the 2021 levels. Um, and uh, the reason for it is that there is no supply of capital in mm-hmm. this space. And um, and people are now starting to reset their expectations for you know what the future price of Bitcoin will be. And they're willing to take a loan collateralized by Bitcoin, if they think that in future it's gonna, you know, it's gonna shoot up or, or leg up again in another year, mm-hmm. and um, so they can pay a ten or ten or twelve percent interest rate on it. They also have to because if you can put money into Treasuries and get five and a half percent, you know, at at a very low counterparty risk, what do you need in order to give a loan to a company? Like you need an extra sort of four or five hundred basis points on that at least. Mm-hmm. I'd like to come back to kind of future predictions on on where you see the markets going. But if we just um, touch on, you know, what makes an ideal asset class, you mentioned short date, high yield, highly mm. liquid, um, to provide that somewhat real-time experience. Uh, what other yeah. classes fall into that and would you be looking at? So you've mentioned T-bills, tax credits, um, account receivables. What, what sort of other ones would commonly fall in that criteria? Uh, I'm super interested in, so we've we've actually uh, been pitched and have surveyed real estate, uh, fintechs, uh, reinsurance, trade finance. The ones I like the most are, they have to be kind of, as, as, as I said, fit, if, if I'm gonna source capital for it, that it needs to be a higher yield, a good collateral package, relatively short duration. So, um, what I like and what I would look to develop would be like trade finance. So this could be uh, international shipping of commodities, for example. So if you do a deal like that, you can take, 
you know, 100, 200% collateralization in grain, hold it with a, or whatever commodity is being shipped, hold it with a collateral agent who will sell it if the counterparty defaults. Um, you can get, you know, 10-ish percent on those kind of deals. You can deal with rated counterparties and you could do large clips. You could do 10, 20, 25 million at a time. And it's relatively short dated. It's also much better to do that type of loan on chain because when you do it off chain, you go through correspondent banks who can hold up the money for weeks at a time. Like banking internationally is, is hugely inefficient. And that's one of the places where um, doing this on chain uh, is, is super effective. Like if I send USDC or USDT from one address to another overseas, you know, it settles in a minute settles in 30 seconds even depending on how, how much gas you put into it if you do that with a car between two correspondent banks you've got t plus two to get the money from you know um one bank to another bank domestically and then uh you know it could actually be an indeterminate amount of time like i've heard stories from the trade finance people that they might have an international bank actually hold up the money for weeks mm -hmm. at a time and not process it and so that's where, that's where, anyway, we can kind of muscle in on that uh, vertical, I think. Mm -hmm. And the other one would be fintechs. So you have a lot of fintechs now who are doing card products for startups mm -hmm. where they require a startup to fully collateralize mm -hmm. a credit card. So they want to pre-fund a credit card with 100K on it. They got to put down 100K in cash mm -hmm. from their most recent Series A or Series B. And, they're, and it's an interchange fee. So it could actually be a much larger than 10% yield uh, going to the fintech who's offering that product. So I think I could lend to that fintech at like a low teens rate with full collateral protection there. And, you know, it could be relatively short dated. So that's another one that I think is pretty interesting. And again, it's it's a product that's born of the inefficiency of, of the banking system. Mm. And how long does it take for you to create these new pools, like these new assets and, and turning into the, these new pools and, and bringing it to market? Um, the, the tech lift is uh, de minimis because we've set up like we've we've launched the protocol, so it's out there. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like uh, it's like the cost of copying a CD. So you just set up a new pool, um, assign a, a delegate to it who's going to do the underwriting and kind of uh, oversee the pool, and then open it for deposits. And you can set it to take only whitelisted KYC deposits. Mm -hmm. um, you can cap the limit, so you can prevent a pool from being too, you know, having too much cash that drags on the, uh, on the interest rate in there. But the longest part of uh, getting a new, new pool launched is the commercial and legal negotiation. So it's finding a partner negotiating commercials with them, vetting and DDing that they actually have the, uh, the skills mm -hmm. and um, the know-how to, to underwrite that segment. And then, you know, the commercial negotiation, like, you know what? What do they need to be paid on it um, as a portion of protocol fees, and um, then the legal analysis. So setting up the legal documents, they'll use external counsel. So it's like you know that can be like a let's say like a, an eight to twelve week um, mm -hmm. deal for deal flow process to get like a new delegate on board. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we'll look to do is um, create a Maple delegate over over time this year, which shortens that because we don't we just if you have a, a an in-house delegate, then you just need uh, to hire an appropriate credit expert to do that type of thing. So that's sort of a, a background project, but that's it is that commercial side where we found the longest um, uh, delay on things. Mm -hmm. 
So let's fast forward Maple five years from now. What what does a company look like? In five years, Maple is competing with, so, you know, and a shift between talking about like company and protocol, because ultimately it's like a, it's, um, you know, it is a protocol that operates on chain. So it would operate whether or not we are in the picture. But what I want it to do is I want Maple to compete with Ares and Apollo and to supplant them as the dominant, um, the dominant credit asset manager globally. And mm -hmm. so how I look at it is that those guys have credit expertise. So that, so their, their core competency is structuring and raising, raising money from um, pension funds, endowments, family offices. They don't actually own any tech. So their tech stack is Excel, inboxes, SQL databases, um, and then you know just buying from third-party vendors. How I view it is that Maple is currently the tech, but without the underwriting, you know, the underwriting team or the um, you know capital like capital raising ability. And so if we vertically integrate that and then build like a Maple delegate, and then you know create channels to raise capital, whether it's through the creation of like credit fund vehicles or exempt offerings, um, we should be able to compete with them and win deals five years from now where we are either offering a lower price to a given borrower, uh, let's say a Fortune 500 company and achieving the same return profile or we, sorry, same loan price and uh, higher return profile to LPs because we can offer, we can operate at a lower cost or we should be able to underprice them but offer the same kind of return to, you know, to LPs who would be depositing in a pool. So that's where I think we would win business off of them. And it's it, the key thing is like the vertical integration there. Um, using a blockchain gives you a tech stack where it's like, oh, we own all our bank accounts and we can send money out from them. They rent bank accounts from mm. banks. And uh, so they have to pay the bank for that infrastructure. And then they have to pay third parties like Plaid or other systems, software developers to build them some software that talks to those bank accounts because they're so poorly engineered technically. Mm. Whereas that, like, that's the core advantage of doing this on chain and using smart contracts, you own the endpoints where all the money goes mm. and you can program how the money is routed between them. And you don't have to employ somebody to sit there and do a spreadsheet reconciliation at the every, at the end of every month of mm. how your loan book performed and who owes, uh, which LP is owed what. And so that's so that's the ultimate vision is to kind of supplant them as the dominant um, credit asset manager globally through vertical integration. Amazing, exciting times ahead, and and we are running out of time, unfortunately. But I did forget to ask you one very important question um, around uh, regulation and how that regulatory impact on the different kind of assets that you're handling. Mm -hmm. So there's. Um, so there's a couple of limbs. So you have like the regulation around lending. Lending to institutions rather than consumers is typically a less less regulated in most financial markets. So you kind of, um, um, that one, like there are some places where there's regulation around it, but mostly that's manageable. Whereas if you had a product that was lending to consumers, heavily regulated in every market. So um, on the borrower side, that is mostly like um, easier to manage. Uh, where the regulation comes in is how are pools treated in different jurisdictions? How are you treated as the provider of infrastructure? So, you know, 
starting out and having the um, the model of other delegates, uh, we're kind of in this position of being software and infrastructure. And so, you know, the delegates can operate um, under any exemptions they choose. But broadly, there was this concept that um, the protocol is disaggregated and no one party is playing kind of a, um, a dominant role in making it work. As we look forward and we start to have a concept like a, a Maple delegate and also as the regulatory backdrop has developed more and um, you're starting to see, you see enforcement action, you see uh, case law building and you're starting to see rudimentary draft legislation developing. Um, how we look at operating in markets is going to typically be like operating under an exemption. So for example, um, in the US, you have like Reg D or Reg S exemptions, and you have exemptions from operating a registered fund under the Investment Company Act. And so in the near term, until there's legislation that kind of creates a way that you can operate or a framework under which you can operate, you would do so under an exemption. And it's the same in most other markets. So Australia, you have private placement offerings for wholesale investors. Same in UK, same in Singapore, same in Hong Kong. In most markets, you have this kind of um, carve out for private placements to parties who are deemed sophisticated or wholesale or professional investors. And so until there's, um, until there's comprehensive legislation or better case law in most of those jurisdictions, you would operate under exemptions. But that allows you, the important thing is it allows you to operate in those jurisdictions. It's just a slightly higher cost to bear and um, kind of caps the volumes you can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that overview and for those listening that are that are perhaps on the on the regulatory side. Um, we have run out of time today, Sid, but I just really wanted to thank you for for really um, giving us a, a deep dive into into Maple, uh, where you've been, where you are, and and where you're going. Um, it's uh, impressive and admirable to to see you sort of steer steer the business over uh, what was definitely tumultuous um, years, and uh, you know. Congratulations on um, on everything you're you're building and on the journey so far. Wish you all the best, and um, you know look forward to uh, continuing our conversations. Um, I guess as as Maple continues to mature. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it and loved all the questions. So thanks, Shira. Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening at home. Uh, we'll catch you in your next episode. Have a great day. See you later.